is God's Word, and you may be seated. I just think there's something stirring about that verse 8, where Peter says, even though you have not seen Him, you what? You love Him. You love Him. And we do. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. We're going to be looking at uh, the book of First Peter this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're, we're grateful to acknowledge that all of the wonderful things that we have in this life are from Your hand. Our ability to love and to be loved, to give and to be given to, to celebrate and to be celebrated, to, to serve and to be served, all of this, Father, is from the greatness of Your mercy. Thank You, Father, for uh, this this changed life that we read of in the New Testament, the life of our brother Peter. And how he gives us so much encouragement and so much hope in this life for the things that you can bring to bear and, and, and to bring to fruition in our life through perseverance and steadfastness and standing firm. And thank you so much for the forgiveness that comes to us. Something that, 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 that Peter never got tired of thinking about. Thank You for that forgiveness. And so, Father, as we study these words that were written by His hand to the church in Asia Minor, we're asking in the name of Christ that You give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the the great things about uh, traveling uh, around the world, primarily as a missionary and as a minister, is that uh, as, as a missionary, you get to live in a, in a place where uh, you, you get to know another culture, you get to know another language, you get to know uh, people with, with different ways of living, with different worldviews and those kinds of things. And when you travel as, as a speaker, you, you get to participate in, in a lot of different areas around the world, in the way the kingdom is being expanded in all of those places. And it's, it's a glorious thing. It's, it's really a joyous thing to see the great things that God is doing in His church all the way around the world. But there's also a troubling part of that, and that is you can never, ever, ever shake the, the burden of, of, of feeling uh, uh, distress, if that's a good word, at the, the hard things that come into believers' lives around the world because they believe. They believe in the Christ. They believe that the Bible is God's Word and they try to pattern their life and the way that they, they relate to the world through God's Word. They believe in a God that created everything and so orders their lives. This, uh, this last week in the Wall Street Journal, on the front page was uh, a picture of the bodies of Christians who were attacked and killed precisely because they were Christian. They were attacked while they were working in a quarry in one of the, the you know, an African nation. And it's the kind of story that you hear more and more frequently these days in some far-off places. If uh, you want some examples of, of that kind of thing happening, and not that you do, but... 
just Google the voice of the martyrs and to go to that website that kind of tracks uh, the, the persecution of the saints throughout the world. Uh, but in looking at that picture, and there really wasn't anything, it was just a picture that was on the front page of the, the Wall Street Journal. There was really no commentary much on it. I was reminded of something that a German theologian, a guy that's still alive today, Jürgen Moulton once said, he said that God weeps with us so that someday we might laugh with Him. That we might laugh with Him that there is sadness and suffering today, but one day it's going to cease. And it won't be a temporary ceasefire. It will be a ceasing, a cessation of those experiences forever. And it will be in the context of God's happy laughter. But it brings up an awfully important question right now. And the question is, but now in this time period, in these days, how shall we now live? How should a Christian live in the world, in this world where suffering for the faith is a reality for many? How are Christians to live responsibly in light of their culture? Now, those questions are what make 1 Peter oh so relevant. Now, historically, there have been a couple of varied answers to how uh, the Christians, believers, disciples of Jesus, are, are to live in light of their culture. There are a couple of ways that this has happened. I'll give you just a couple. There is the Amish response, which is basically a separating of itself away from, from secular society. And the, the downside of that, though, is that there's not a whole lot of influence for the kingdom in that answer. There's also the liberation theology answer where it becomes a by any means necessary, which can lead Christians, can lead people like you and me, to arming themselves to fight the injustices of corrupt societies. Uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, a movie that was, um, uh, that was released... In 1989, uh, entitled The Mission, is, is basically uh, how all of some of that got started in South America. It's a very, very good movie. There is also the moral majority way that seeks to wield political power, and others as well. But it, in, in the main, it appears that disciples of Jesus have tried to lean in one of two directions. The one is to completely separate. That is, to cut off all ties, to, to separate, to cut off contact as much as possible. The problem, though, is that there's a loss of influence. All of that blessing, all of that goodness, the gospel, all of those things that make up our, our worldview, that, that, that have shaped the way that we think and the way that we live and have, have formed the hope that we have in our heart for the future, all of that is lost. There's a loss of influence when we separate ourselves away. Another, and you know how the pendulum goes, it goes to the other side. Another way of dealing with it is, is, is to assimilate. Not to separate, but to assimilate. To minimize the differences between Christ and culture. But the problem is there's nothing really like salt and light and leaven that make up the Christian, the Christian church or the, the, the Christian community that has much influence anymore in, in, in that community, in that society. Peter would offer a third alternative, not to separate and not to assimilate. Peter would offer something right down the middle. He says in chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives. What's the next word? Say it together. Among. 
lived such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Then you go over to chapter 3, verse 15. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. The word there is sanctified. To separate Christ in your heart, which means to live a life that is, is pungent with, with love and with, with holiness and, and generosity. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with what? Gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And then in the next chapter, verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear the name. The Apostle Peter writes to Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor. He calls them three times in this book. He calls them aliens or strangers in the new NIV. He calls them exiles. Now, what in the world does it mean to be a stranger and an exile or an alien, according to Peter? Well, most people take it as, you know, it's, he's referring to the pilgrimage, the, the spiritual growth, the, the fact that we're on a journey to Christ. And there is that aspect of the life of faith, the growing in the likeness of Jesus. But in the context of First Peter and of Pontus and of Bithynia and northern Turkey, Asia Minor, the aliens and strangers more likely refer to those that are on the bottom rung of the social ladder. What Peter is doing is writing to people who are disenfranchised. They're the ones who find themselves on the margin of their, of their culture. They are the ones who are at the bottom of the social ladder. And because they're there and because they're different, their worldview is different. Their values are different. They are, are viewed as threats to the status quo. They're viewed as threats to the normal way of life. And that local fear and that local suspicion in those communities where Christians were found well, that suspicion would lead to different kinds of suffering for the Christian's faith. But Peter says, do not be surprised at that as though something strange were happening to you or that it's something to be ashamed of. But he does not say to disengage. In no way do you disengage, but he says you engage to the point that you are living a life that is visible, a visible life of faith and good deeds. That may be seen by those that don't share the same worldview or the same values as faith at all that you do. And Peter says, the door will open. Maybe not for everyone. Probably not for everyone. But when that door opens, share the gospel. So what do we do in, in our own culture? What do we do in our own culture when it comes to living Godly lives, the way that, that, that God would have us live in a culture like this in order to make the kingdom known, the gospel known. Well, the first thing that he counsels, and we'll talk about three things. In no way do we have time this morning in a one-off sermon on First Peter to think about all of the, the nuances of the things, the great theological profound things that he says. But we're going to look at three things. The first is this. You live a gospel-driven life. You live a gospel-driven life. Peter calls these disciples to think very deeply about their faith at the very beginning of this book. 
My question is, how, how, when's the last time you did that? You thought very deeply, not just uh, when somebody like Randy Thompson, who did a great job with our communion devotional this morning, makes us uh, uh, think about maybe some angles or some aspects of it that we've not thought about. But I mean, you sat down with, with the Word open and maybe pencil in, 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 in hand or prayerfully, or just as you're driving, and thought about the greatness of what God has done in your life. Thought about it so deeply and profoundly that it led you to a place, to a point where you cried out, as he does in verse 3, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To thought about what God has wrought in your life to the point where you say, praise Him for that. That in His great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope. Not just, not just a, a, an anticipation that something's going to come to us, maybe, if we're lucky. That's a dead hope. This is a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That it will be different in the future because of what Christ has done in me today. Frederick Craddock is a very well-known uh, preacher has written a lot of books on preaching, and he, he writes in one of his books, he writes that for many Christians, the bare naked facts of the faith can be heavy-footed and pedestrian. And you know what he's saying there. He's saying that familiarity can create contempt, and if not contempt, then maybe a little bit of boredom, at least a low-grade boredom. You know how it is? You're on a ship, and we're, and we're all like this. I mean, you're on a cruise ship and you've had nine beautiful sunsets. After nine beautiful sunsets, you're a little bored and you begin to pray a little bit, maybe not much, before a storm. Boredom in the life of the Christian works against the faith. And the way that it does it is that it lulls the Christian into a drowsy indifference. For Peter, that will not do. And so he writes, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Peter's saying, don't be lulled into, into drowsiness. Don't, don't, don't be lulled into a, 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 a sense of complacency. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And so at the very beginning of this letter, Peter wants them to think of the greatness of their, their salvation. For them to think about the cross and about God's love and His mercy and what, what Christ accomplished in the incarnation. He wants them to think of the greatness of their salvation to the point that it becomes vibrant and dynamic. And so in the first chapter, he gives them all of these, these concepts. Now again, we don't have time to talk about all the concepts, but, but listen to these words. And these are not all of them. But just listen to these words that he uses to describe the difference. You're born again. You have an inheritance in heaven. You are protected in this world, in this life, by the power of God. You have been saved. You have been given grace. You have been redeemed. And in verse 6, he says, In all of this, you greatly rejoice. And the end result of this is the call to live a certain kind of a cut-across-the-grain life. He says in verse 13, With your minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. 
As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He called you, uh, He who, is, who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. It says not only live a gospel-driven life, thinking deeply about what, is, what God has accomplished in your life through the cross to the point that you praise God, but know your identity and your mission. Know what it is, the purpose that you have in this life, what God has called you to do. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You know what you once were? Once you were not a people. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of these designations that he uses in verse 9 go back to the Old Testament. And the question is, why in the world use them? What was the purpose of Peter in reminding these New Testament people about all of these designations in the Old Testament? What was the purpose of the chosen people, the priesthood, the holy nation, God's special possession in the Old Testament? It was to declare through their words and their life the greatness of God saving them from the darkness and transferring them into the kingdom of light. And Peter says, you know where you do that? It's not just when you come together, but it's also when you find yourself thinking about the government. You submit, he says in chapter 2 beginning in verse 13, to the human institution. You honor the king. He says it's also in the places where you work. The example that he gives here are servants and masters. I, I would refer you to the sermon a couple of weeks ago to Philemon. We don't have time to talk about that particular area this morning. But the workplace is where you live out your identity and mission. In your marriage. In your marriage between wives and husbands in chapter 3. You live out the ramifications of, of, of your, your salvation. You know, when Paul writes about marriages... In Ephesians chapter 5, we're, we're, we actually think that he's talking about marriages. How silly of us because he's talking about marriages. But he reminds us at the end, he says, I, you know, the, the, I'm really writing a, in this mystery of marriage. It's really about the church. What he's saying is that there is, in your marriage, people should, be, should see, husbands, people should be able to observe the way that you conduct yourself with your wife and see something of the gospel. And wives, as you are in a marriage with your husband and you go about living your, your life with them, there should be something of the gospel that is seen. How much more so, as Peter writes, about when, when there are wives who are not married to believers. In chapter 3, verse 8, he talks about the church. You know, in American culture, you know, we're so independent, we're so... Uh, uh, ruggedly independent in, in, in all that we do. And sometimes we forget that God not only uses us as individuals, but He also uses us collectively in the church. The church has a reputation in the society as well. And when you think about what it is that He calls the church to do, the scope of the ministry is enormous. And that's why He says, inside of the church, 
as you rely on each other during the fiery ordeal, but also as, as a, a way to communicate what the gospel is, you need to, to, to bring all of the gospel into the way that you relate to one another. Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Do not return evil for evil. I mean, if we go around giving everybody evil for the evil that they've given us, we redeem nothing. That was one of the, 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 the greatest, to me, theologically, one of the greatest high points of Martin Luther King Jr.'s writings. He said there's no way that we should respond in kind with hate and, 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 and meanness and violence with the same kind of thing. That redeems nothing. Love is the only thing that redeems. You don't give insult for insult. My, my old uh, graduate school professor, Paul Faulkner, said, he said, you know, you, you, you never win if you just get into a contest insulting one another. Nobody ever wins a puking contest with a buzzer. And in the end, he says, be a blessing. Be a blessing. You live a gospel-driven life. And you know your identity and mission in the world. And then number three, you face the suffering. There is a way to face suffering that is thoroughly Christian. He writes in chapter 3, verse 13, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. I hate to admit this, but sometimes suffering is justified as when I'm going through a small town not far from here and getting a speeding ticket. It's justified because I was what? Even though I want to argue my case, you can't argue with a radar. It's because I broke the law. If I wasn't speeding, I would not have gotten the ticket. But sometimes it's not like that. Sometimes you suffer for being a Christian and, leave, and, and, and living a Christ-like life in the world as it is. Jesus said it would happen and because you know that, and because you know the blessings, you've contemplated the blessings that you have in the Gospel, you do not have to be shaken. You do not have to be afraid. And so Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He ends the book in, in talking about, you know, when, when disciples of Jesus who are trying to live their lives in conformity to the Christ, when they find themselves going through this kind of experience, they're blessed to have a shepherd in their life. And when you think about the first century and the, 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 the sporadic persecution that the Christians faced and how it would build and build and build and build and build throughout the, uh, until the time of Decius where it became this, this full out, blown out war on Christianity, one of the things that got them through was the shepherd. That kind of persecution gave... That kind of struggle for the faith gave a, a, a form and a function and a purpose to shepherding in the first century. That's why they were called shepherds. David, in Psalm 23, is talking to God and says, God, you are my shepherd. 
I don't need anything because you're my shepherd. And though I walk through the valley of what? Shadow of death, I will fear nothing. Because I'm Rambo. Because you are with me. That's why you contemplate the Gospel in your own life. Yea, though I walk through the valley of death, I will fear no evil because you, the shepherd, leads me. And to the shepherds, Peter writes in verse 2 of chapter 5, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. And he ends the book by just reminding them that, that you have to, the, the life of, of a disciple of Jesus is not one that's lived in, in, in the path of least resistance. It is a life that is switched on. He says, be humble before God. Cast your anxiety on on Him. Be sober and alert. Recognize the nature of Satan. He says he's a prowling lion wanting to 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 devour. You are to resist Satan and anticipate it that it's going to be God who will establish you and bless you. You know, one of the, 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 the rare things that are mentioned in, in Peter's writings is this reference that he makes to the great shepherd Christ. One of the when you think about the life that these people were living that Peter's writing to, these these are people that are trying to live their life in light of God's will. They're trying to be loving to everyone. They're trying to be generous. They're they're trying to to they're 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 trying to celebrate the good things and they're serving people and fellowshipping and 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 helping people with their generosity and being gracious in the way that God has been gracious to them and trying to be forgiving. They're trying to bring that kind of influence into the culture that they're living, but they find the culture that they're living in to be hostile to it. And because it's hostile, they find themselves suffering because of it. Some of them even to the point of death. But Peter says, you've got to remember that great shepherd. And what was it that made him great? Well, as you know, he had a pretty good gig in heaven. In heaven. Nothing could harm him. Nothing could touch him. Nothing could get at him in that place at God's side. And yet, what did he do? And with, with, with love and mercy... And kindness. He left that and went into our world, which was a culture of hostility to him. And even among those that recognized him and should have recognized him, and some did, but most didn't, he was at odds. And it was those that he had created in this world that put Him to death on that tree, on that cross. What Peter is reminding in five chapters, the people that are living in that northern part of Asia Minor and all of that stuff that they're experiencing, is that they are participating in the sufferings of Christ. That as Christ left everything that was beautiful and great and harmonious and went into a place that did not understand and rejected and was hostile and at times brought suffering and at times brought death, so too the people who emulate that life as they go into that culture as well. 
And what Peter says is live holy. Do the good deeds. Do the good deeds. Do, do the things that the Gospel calls you to do so that on that day of, of judgment, on that day of judgment, you will be vindicated. But in the meantime, but in the meantime, you have helped to spread the greatness of the Gospel to many, many people. We're going to have some shepherds down here at the front. And maybe there are some ways that you're struggling in your faith. Maybe there are some things that you've been thinking about and not quite straight in your mind about what it means to become a Christian. Maybe there are some ways that you're struggling with, with some things that are happening in your workplace or maybe at your home or in the neighborhood or wherever you find yourself. And maybe there's even some pushback on your faith and you find yourself at times feeling weak and at times feeling fearful and at times being a little bit scared. And these shepherds, Know about that. And if there's any way that our church can minister to you this morning, we're going to ask you to come forward as the rest of us stand and praise God together. Oh, listen to our wondrous story, counted once among the lost. Yet one came down from heaven's.